Welcome back, all you queer history fans. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, and I am here to present to you the history most queer. It's nice to be back on the digital airwaves again with all of you. I took a little break for a few reasons. The first being just to take a little breather. That part of the summer was pretty busy. Likewise, I got some new equipment for recording, and hopefully this will sound better. I sort of have the hang of using it, or at least I think I do. I'm sure as time progresses, I will become more proficient at using all of this stuff. Well, I hope that all of you have been enjoying the summer, or at the very least, have been trying to keep cool. This whole climate change thing is not particularly fun, especially with temperatures approaching what normally you would only get in an oven. Enough with all the banter, though. You are here for the queer. The month of August is Transgender History Month. It honors the anniversary of Compton's Cafeteria Riots, which was an uprising that occurred in San Francisco in August of 1966, nearly three years before the Stonewall Uprising. Police had been harassing drag queens and trans people at the Tenderloin location of a chain of cafeterias known as Compton's Cafeteria. Now, this episode is not about that event, but I thought it might be nice to lightly contextualize the reasoning behind why August is a period for celebrating transgender history. Today we will be journeying farther back than the 1960s. In fact, we need to program our time machines to jump all the way back to the 18th century. There we will find a pioneer trans woman whose life was full of adventure and intrigue. She would be a soldier, a spy, and a diplomat. It is possible that this woman was perhaps intersex, but we will get into that much later. Needless to say, for half of her life, she lived as a man, with the latter half as a woman. She's known as the Chevalier Dion, but she had other names as well. In fact, it was a whole tractor trailer full of them. Chevalier by the way, is French for knight, so this French trans icon was first and foremost a knight of the realm. She received this honor at the age of 35. That is pretty badass, if I do say so myself. Due to the historical nature of her life and how things were documented at the time, I will mention her dead name, but likewise the name she later chose for herself. Normally, I'll just refer to her as Dion. Uh, as that's really simpler, especially when I tell you what her names were. So here we go. Charles Genevieve Louis Auguste André Timothy Dion de Beaumont, or Charles Genevieve Louise Auguste André Timothy Dion de Beaumont. Yes, she really did have that many middle names, five of them. 
I do like that her chosen female names were just feminized versions of the male names that were assigned to her at birth. So now you can see why I will refer to Charlotte as simply Dion. Anyhow, Dion was born on the 5th of October, 1728, at the Hôtel Duzet in Tonnerre, Burgundy, in France, to a family of French nobles. While Dion was born into this rather privileged rank, it did not necessarily come with a lot of money. The family was quite poor, so the leisurely life of a landed gentleman was not in the cards for her. Now, Dion was born during the reign of Louis XV, the great-grandson of the Sun King, Louis XIV. While this was not the heyday of the extreme absolutist monarchy that had existed with his predecessor, the King Louis of this period was still living in unbelievable uh, ostentatious luxury at the Palace of Versailles. It was this level of extreme wealth inequality that would, in a few decades, lead to the French Revolution. Our subject, Dion, would herself live to see this as well as the Revolutionary War between the United States and Great Britain. Dion's father, Louis, yes, it seems for quite a while that the French had a limited number of names to give their sons. What can I say? Please also refer to the English royals who have had seven or eight Henrys, Georges, and Edwards. No King Roberts. What about King Sebastian? Nope. These royals just recycle the same five or six names. And in France, it's just the same name over and over again. Okay, end of side tangent. Anyhow, Louis Dion was an attorney and later became the mayor of the town of Tonnerre. Françoise de Charenton was Dion's mother. Like most noble women of the time period, she had no real occupation and little seems to have been written about her because why on earth would anyone want to document the lives of women? Dion was quite bright and did well in her studies, going on to study both civil and church law in Paris, and she graduated at the age of 21. She would go on to do a little bit of writing and be a secretary for various administrative offices in Paris. One of her books about finance was used as a blueprint for reforms in the Kingdom of Prussia years later. She was also quite an athlete, being especially adept at fencing. Only one other person in France is said to have bested her in the sport. Now, things are about to get spicy. Even within an absolute monarchy, there are always other aspects of government that are not directly controlled by the king. Sometimes, the king wanted to know stuff. Stuff that the rest of the government was either unable to obtain for him, or unwilling. For that reason, Louis XV had his secret de roi, or the king's secret. I know it sounds like some overpriced knockoff cologne, but in fact, the secret was a collection of spies that worked outside of the knowledge of the rest of the government. As such, there were two versions of foreign policy being ran from the palace. The official, which was headed by the foreign minister, and the second, well, that was the wishes of the king, with, of course, him as the ultimate head of that effort. I suppose it afforded the crown a level of plausible deniability 
should other foreign powers discover and block the king's secrets activities, as the official party line would be different. So it was this network of spies that worked to get King Louis's plans into action, especially when they ran contrary to the kingdom's official policies. It was to this collection of clandestine operatives that Dion would soon find herself employed. Her first mission would find herself in Russia, acting in an ambassadorial role to the court in St. Petersburg. King Louis was wanting to support the Russian Empress Elizabeth in her struggles with the Habsburg Empire. Part of this support was also beneficial to the French, or at the very least, one particular Frenchman, Le Prince de Conti, a cousin of Louis, who had a claim to the throne of Poland and could have really used the support of the Russian Empress. Like with many struggles between European powers, there were all manner of political shenanigans going on all over the place. The English were traditionally not the biggest fans of the French. Under the reign of King George II, the English were trying their best to cripple any French influence in Russia. The way in which they pulled this off was to ensure that only women and children could cross the border into Russia. Any diplomats from Paris would be barred from entering because, as we all know, <laughs> only men can be diplomats. So, in stepped our Chevalier Dion. She was able to slip into the country dressed and appearing as a woman rather than as the man that she normally presented as. As a woman, she entered the service of the Empress as a maid of honor, which is a position that's just a little bit under a lady-in-waiting. Some historians actually don't accept this part of the story, believing that Dion was just saying all of this to convince people that her dressing in female attire had been necessary and a patriotic duty to the French crown. Now, in uh, Empress Elizabeth's court, there was this weekly dance, the Metamorphosis Ball, that would be thrown in which the men had to come dressed as women and the women as men. I'm not so sure which gender Dion appeared as at these little soirees, but it's, it's rather interesting that this was going on in St. Petersburg during her time there. At the very least, the gender fluidity surrounding the parties would have given the young diplomat the opportunity to play with gender in a way that would have not ordinarily been available to people. For my part, I think she dressed as a woman for these get-togethers. After all, the gowns had already been purchased to help her slip into the country and start working for the Empress. Why not get her money's worth out of them? Either way, Dion had been able to enter Russia and work in a secretarial position in the French embassy there. It was not without some dangers when she found herself safely in her job at the embassy. She would find herself under the watchful eye of one of Russia's most powerful people, the Chancellor, Count Alexei Bestyezhev. Bestyezhev had come up during the reign of Tsar Peter the Great. Peter had been a great modernizer in the Russian Empire. Modernizer probably isn't even the right word. It's more of a word for 
Western Europeanizer. Before Peter, Russia had looked in many ways as it had for centuries before. The manners, dress, and customs of the Russian court would have looked completely foreign to other kingdoms and principalities in Europe. Under Peter, who had received an education in the West, the ideas and ways of being that were in fashion in places like Vienna, London, or Paris were now brought to Russia. A new capital, St. Petersburg, was built on Western European lines and styles. The court moved west from Moscow, both in a literal sense as well as in its traditions. Gone were the long robes and beards of the past few centuries. Those were traded out for wigs, frock coats, and a little bit of lace. The Russian elite now wanted their best and brightest to be educated in the West, just as their Tsar had been. So too would Bestuzhev's family. The young man would move all over Europe, becoming steeped in early Enlightenment thought as well as the cutthroat politics of that region. He found himself to be more inclined to the English and Austrian Empire. The machinations of the French were distasteful to him. They were keen to see their influence in Poland, Sweden, and the Ottoman Empire increase. All three of these bordered Russia. Once Empress Elizabeth found herself on the Russian throne, he was able to work his way up to the position of Chancellor, which saw him overseeing foreign affairs for the Empire. He worked diligently to protect Russia from French influence for 20 years. When the young diplomat, the Chevalier Dion, came across his radar, he saw her as a threat to Russian security. He spoke of her as un sujet dangereuse et capable de bouleverser l'Empire, a dangerous person who was capable of destabilizing the Empire. Dion, in kind, thought similar thoughts about the Chancellor. Her efforts now were directed to poisoning the mind of Empress Elizabeth against Bestyazhev. After all, with him out of the way, it would undermine any attempts within the Russian court to block French influence. Likewise, the attempts by uh, the Prince de Conti to land himself on the Polish throne would be far easier if the watchful eye of the Chancellor was no longer a problem. In the end, she was able to sway the Empress. Bestuzhev was arrested and exiled to his home in Gorotovo. Mostly, this was due to his attempts to have the Duchess Catherine become the successor to the Empress Elizabeth over her own husband, Peter. Peter would go on to become the Tsar as Peter III, but his own wife, the aforementioned Catherine, would in the end overthrow him and rule in his place after just a few months. Eventually, Bestuzhev would again find himself in the halls of power, but sadly, he would die shortly thereafter in 1766. The spy who had bested him, Dion, would go on to live for another 44 years. Louis, the Prince de Conti, was unsuccessful in his attempts to rule over Poland, so in many ways, the efforts of the French king's spies ended up coming to nothing. They were a failure. Dion's service to king and country was hardly complete, however. As a dragoon captain, a mounted cavalry soldier, 
She was able to fight for her country in the Seven Years' War, which lasted between 1756 through 1763, hence the name, Seven Years. In the United States, this conflict is referred to as the French and Indian War. It was a conflict that seemed to occur across a good portion of the planet, from, of course, Europe, but also the Caribbean and North America to as far as India. One kind of wonders why this was not known as the First World War. But anyhow, Dion would be involved in four large battles during the end of this war. Once a peace treaty had been signed, ending the conflict, Louis XV would reward Dion for her service by granting her a pension of 2,400 livres, as well as a knighthood in the Order of Saint-Louis, hence why we call her the Chevalier Dion. One of the more minor missions that she was sent on during the war was delivering a message to the Comte de Guerchy. The message was from the Duc de Bogli, the commanding officer of the dragoons to which Dion belonged. Now the Duke and the Comte hated each other, each belonging to rival cliques within the French court. And when the messages had been delivered by Dion, de Guercy was quite hateful toward the young courier. Dion would always have sour feelings towards de Guercy, and vice versa. Her career would now move her across the channel into England, where she would act as a chargé d'affaires, which is basically a diplomatic title for someone acting in an ambassadorial role. Of course, just like in Russia, her job was pulling double duty. King Louis had sent her to outwardly function as a diplomat, negotiating a peace treaty with England's King George III, but in secret, she was gathering information, returning to her work in espionage. Again, the French government was unaware of the secret dealings of the king's spies. In Dion's case, she was sizing up the southern coast and schmoozing with the lords and ladies of the realm, plying them with wine made from her family's own vineyards. She would always don her dragoon uniform and become a bit, she became a bit of a celebrity amongst the upper class. She would entertain them by challenging men to fencing duels and regaling people with her, often exaggerated, tales of bravery in war. Now that's not to say she was not brave, but sometimes Sometimes she padded the story a little bit. With her popularity and gregarious nature, it made her spycraft invisible to those in power in England. This, of course, was by design, as the French king had a secret desire to invade his neighbor to the north. It is a continuation of a long history of tit-for-tat between Britain and France. Had the king's advisors known of his plans, they would have put the kibosh on the whole mad affair. They had just gotten out of a global seven-year war, so it is not unreasonable to think that they might want to take a bit of a breather before rearming the cannons all over again. Dion's loyalty to King Louis was absolute. She would go to the ends of the earth for her country and king. So, not only was she giving him information from England, but she was also keeping him informed on intrigue and secrets that his own court was keeping quiet. 
Now, stuff starts to get a bit shady from this point on. Back at the court of Versailles, there were a whole variety of nobles that were all jockeying to influence the king. Some did so for personal reasons, while others had doubts as to Louis's decisions. One of the most influential of these courtiers was the king's official mistress, a very real and very powerful position at Versailles, uh, Madame de Pompadour. Now, that was a noblewoman about whom quite a bit of ink was spilled. While many women were, women were overlooked by history, that cannot be said about this lady. She was not born into nobility. Rather, her wit, brilliance, and beauty were the tools that she used to climb up the ladder to eclipse all others in the eyes of the king. She would be invested with the Duchy of Pompadour and become the lady-in-waiting to the queen. In terms of her rank, she was just below the king and queen. But when it comes to her actual power, she was influential in a variety of foreign and domestic policy decisions and in many ways functioned almost as a prime minister of the country. So, why am I bringing up Madame de Pompadour? Well, because she and Dion became enemies. While serving in her diplomatic capacity, a new and official ambassador to Britain was appointed. And it's a name you might remember, the Comte de Guercy. With de Guercy now the head of the diplomatic contingent in England, Dion was demoted and humiliated that an old enemy was now in command of her life. The new ambassador had as his primary supporter at Versailles none other than Madame de Pompadour. Dion was having none of this and for the first time disobeyed her directives from the king. She refused to step down from her position and accept the demotion, going so far as to challenge de Guercy and his men to a duel. She wanted to leave England, traveling back to Versailles, all to inform Louis of everything. De Guercy invited Dion to his residence in London for dinner. Now, Dion claimed that de Guercy had attempted to poison her during a dinner. She had no problem going to the English newspapers with the story. In fact, the new ambassador had been appointed on purpose to stop Dion from corresponding with the king. She had, in her capacity as a spy, uncovered financial misdeeds by some of the French officials in Britain. What better way was there to stop Dion than by ending her life with a little bit of poisoned wine or a toxic meal? The English were enthralled with the tales of intrigue and potential assassination. It would not take long for Versailles to learn of these stories. When Louis learned of the public battle between the two diplomats, he was horrified. After all, rule one of spycraft is to keep a low profile. Dion was doing quite the opposite. Things had to be brought under control. So, King Louis hit his spy right where it would hurt the most. He cut off her paychecks and sent an extradition order to Britain to have her returned to France immediately. 
Now, was it Louis who had thought up this idea to shut down the Chevalier, or was it more likely that Madame de Pompadour or her clique had whispered the idea into his ear? Whoever initiated the idea is inconsequential. What mattered is that the actions were taken. No one could have predicted the consequences that would follow. In 1764, Dion decided to publish all of the diplomatic papers in her possession, with one exception. All letters dealing with the French invasion plan were kept back as kind of an insurance policy. It was a diplomatic scandal that was unheard of. Dion was now nose to nose with King Louis. The king knew that if the secret papers were published, it would ruin French standing and potentially restart the Seven Years' War. This time, it would not be a sure thing that Russia would be in France's corner. As for the extradition treaty, England refused to honor it. Dion had won the hearts and minds of the nobility and general populace. It did not hurt that there was a seething hatred for the French king. So, it seemed that in the Battle of Wills, that Louis XV had lost. Dion now sued de Gaussy for attempted murder and claimed that his replacement was unfit for the job which France had sent him to perform. In return, Dion was sued by the other for libel. With all this back and forth animosity, Dion failed to offer a defense in the libel case and she was found guilty. France now declared Dion an outlaw. The standoff would finally end in 1766 when de Guercy was recalled to France. The king decided that all the fuss was too much and let Dion keep her diplomatic position. She was even given an annuity. It seemed that things were going her way, so she decided to reject the initial payment demanding that all of her debts also be paid by Versailles in addition to the annuity. While Louis was still worried about the secret letters being released, there was no way he would be further blackmailed. He kept on Dion as his spy and diplomat, but she had to live in exile in England and not have all that debt paid off. It would be a quiet few years for Dion until her life again was a matter of public debate in Britain. The London Stock Exchange started taking bets on whether the Chevalier was a man or a woman. Now this whole time, Dion had been living as a man, dressed almost exclusively in her dragoon uniform. While her stories of dressing as a woman for a career had circulated already for some time, the thought began to go around that she had in fact been born female and had only impersonated a man to have a diplomatic career and to fight in the Seven Years' War. It was not unheard of for women to do such things. After all, France's patron saint, Jeanne d'Arc, or Joan of Arc, had famously donned the armor of a soldier as she marched into battle against the English in the 15th century. In the minds of the British, Dion was a new Joan. Now it would have been a really simple matter to end all of this speculation. Although it may have been a bit creepy, nothing was stopping Dion from gathering a bunch of men together 
and dropping her trousers. At this point, she was still living and presenting as a man. But soon enough, that would change. In 1774, Louis XV died of smallpox and was succeeded by his grandson, Louis XVI. I mean, really, again, no other names, none. The new King Louis was not about to run things in the manner of his predecessor. The king's secret was disbanded, and there was some hopes that Dion might be able to return to his native land. He requested to have his exile ended, and so the king sent the author, Pierre de Beaumarchais, to negotiate with the diplomat. Now, de Beaumarchais was a pretty clever cookie. Dion would, could return to France and keep her pension. However, she would have to surrender her insurance policy of the secret invasion plans. De Beaumarchais, over the course of the negotiations, had learned of the betting that had been underway regarding the Chevalier's sex. So, he decided to have a word with Dion about the matter. It was decided the papers would be handed over, and Dion would return safely to France, but only on the condition that she wear skirts when she did so. France would legally recognize her as a woman. The story that would be told was that she had been born female, but her father, in a desire to have no issues with inheritance, raised her as a son. She would, of course, no longer be allowed to wear her precious uniform of the dragoons. Likewise, her current ambassadorial position would have to be vacated, as a woman could not legally do that job in that time period. Dion was totally on board with the uh, agreement, but she had to wait to announce everything, as the clever de Beaumarchais had one last thing to do before getting all of those papers signed. He placed an enormous bet on the London Stock Exchange, saying that he bet that London's favorite French diplomat was, and always had been, a woman. When the agreement between Louis XVI and Dion was announced, de Beaumarchais had made a pretty penny. It was basically insider trading. Dion now was able to return home, in order to not greatly upset factions in France that had sided with de Guercy, she was banished to her birthplace of Tonnerre in Burgundy. That would not be the end of her story, though. While it seemed that things were looking calm for the Chevalier, the world was about to again be thrown into war. France, always eager to thumb her nose at England, sided with the rebelling colonies in the American Revolution. Dion was eager to join it, always prepared to patriotically fight for her beloved French nation. Sadly, Louis XVI would not grant her an end to her exile. I wonder what would be different in the United States if she had fought alongside the colonists. Would her name grace streets and boulevards all over the country in the same way as Lafayette's does? Would American history books declare Dion an honorary founding mother of the country? I guess we'll never know. A few years later, in 1779, she published her memoir, La Vie Militaire, Politique et Privée de Mademoiselle Dion, or The Military, Political, and Private Life of the Lady Dion. 
there were some embellishments to the stories in her work and she used a ghostwriter so a grain of salt may be needed when reading this particular uh, work of quote-unquote nonfiction. A few years after that in 1785 she was able to leave Burgundy and she decided to return to England. All seemed to be going well for her. England and the United States' war had ended and she was still able to enjoy gowns made by the dressmaker to Queen Marie Antoinette herself. The French Revolution threw everything into turmoil. While Dion initially was pleased with the storming of the Bastille, and despite her ancestral lands being confiscated by the new French National Assembly, when war broke out between France and the Habsburgs, she wrote them a letter volunteering to lead regiments of all women soldiers, Amazons, to fight on behalf of France. Her kind offer was not taken up, and it's probably for the best as her mood would eventually cool to the revolution when King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette were executed in 1793. With the terror now descending on France, her pension was cut off and she found herself in horrible, crippling debt. She would continue to engage in her old ways of fencing to raise some much-needed cash, wielding her sword while bedecked in black silk and satin gowns. It was a novelty that soon lost its shine when she was injured in just such a duel in 1796. From here on, she had to pawn her possessions to keep her head above water. At least she was not alone, though. A year before her injury, she met Mary Cole, a widow whose husband had been an admiral. It is very likely that the two women were lovers, but as so often happens with these kinds of matters of history, they're often just referred to as really close friends who lived together. A few years saw her spending some time in debtor's prison due to her negative income. Never wanting to do that again, she decided to contact a publisher to write another memoir, but it was never published in her lifetime. Her final years were spent with Mary Cole where she was bedridden from becoming paralyzed in a terrible fall. At the age of 81, on the 21st of May, 1810, the Chevalier Dion died in her bed. Due to all of the speculation about whether she was born a male or a female, an autopsy was called for to determine once and for all what the truth was about this almost mythical French knight. Upon examining her body, it was found that she had perfectly formed male genitals, so it seemed that for the next few hundred years she would be seen as a curiosity, a man who had hoodwinked two nations into believing that he was a woman. The story really does not end with her genitals, though. The examiner also found that while her penis and testicles were perfectly formed, so too were her breasts. Of course, there's no way to be sure, but it may very well be possible that she was intersex. Now, whether she was intersex or not is not the issue. The issue is whether she was a man or a woman, and I think the evidence is clear. When the French Revolution went down, 
the agreement made between her and the king was now null and void. Had she seen herself as a man, there would have been no need to continue presenting as a female. She could have ditched her dresses, thrown back that old uniform on her back, and gotten a job to help pay her bills. And also, nothing external stopped her from even pretending to be a man to have a steady income. No, the thing that seems abundantly clear is that whatever her genitals or chromosomes, she felt at home as a woman. Her true comfort was in that. Even while she was dying in poverty, she never wavered in her declaration that she was Charlotte, Genevieve, Louise, Auguste, Andrea, Timothée, Dion de Beaumont, the Chevalier Dion, a soldier, a spy, a diplomat, and first and foremost, a woman. Dion relatively recently became quite popular globally when a painting of her was identified by London's National Portrait Gallery in 2011. According to the gallery, the oil painting by Thomas Stewart had been misidentified as being of a woman. The portrait was obtained by the London art dealer Philip Mould in New York. At first, Mould was under the assumption that it was of a rather masculine-looking woman, and that the artist who painted it was the American artist Gilbert Stewart, who painted the famous unfinished portrait of George Washington, Athenian portrait in 1796. Upon acquiring and cleaning her portrait, it became far more clear that the subject of the painting had a quite masculine face, including the shadow of beard stubble. With that and the prominent medallion of the Order of St. Louis, it became clear to historians that this was, according to them, not a portrait of a lady in an extravagant hat, but rather a man in women's clothing. Likewise, it was discovered that the painter had not been the American Gilbert Stuart, but rather the English Thomas Stuart. It was an astonishing discovery for a variety of reasons. At the time when women were painted, the artists would normally take license to soften features and create sort of an idealized version of the subject. To be fair, they did the same thing to men. But that was not so with Dion's portrait. It was quite clear that the subject had not had this treatment done by Stuart. The level of skill also shows that the painter was not trying to create a work of humor, as would have normally been the case if someone was shown wearing clothing that was not associated with their gender. In this case, it was a serious portrait. As I mentioned before, the desire to know the sex of Dion had been a topic of public conversation for years while the Chevalier was living in London. Bets were placed, and the matter finally settled with her death. Most likely, as this painting was commissioned from a previous portrait of her, Stuart was clearly making a statement about which bet he was making on Dion's gender. I hope he did not put too much money on that bet. So that is the conclusion of the story of one of France's most fascinating historical trans icons. She had a life that was overflowing with adventure and intrigue, 
And, you know, every time I learn something new about her, I'm just enthralled with how complicated, sharp, and shrewd this lady was. I mean, it takes a real iron will to stand up to the King of France and volunteer to go to war, whether in a dress or not. With all this vile transphobic legislation being passed in the United States, and for that matter all over the planet, I think her story needs to be told now more than ever. I think it is also about time that she takes her place next to Joan of Arc as truly heroic women warriors of the French nation. Well, it is that time again where I start to bring this show to a close. Again, it is great to be back to making these little dips into LGBTQIA history for all of you out there. If you want to get in touch, you can visit our Instagram at HistoryMostQueer. You can also send an email to a HistoryMostQueer at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. If you're liking what you're hearing, then rate this podcast, whether you're, you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you come to get your queer history hit for the week. Take care of yourself out there, and I look forward to next week when I will have another fascinating story to tell you. Bye-bye. Woo! <laughs>